invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 27. We'll begin in verse 1 through verse 10. In 1873, Horatio Spafford was told by his wife's doctor that he needed to take her to Europe uh, for health reasons. And so they scheduled a ship, a voyage, and he and his wife and his four daughters would set sail together. But as the time to set sail drew near, there was some unexpected business that came up and it delayed Mr. Spafford from boarding the shift ship. But his wife and four daughters went ahead and he would join them later. And as they were on the high seas, an English ship, the Lochern, collided with the ship that they were on and their ship sunk in a matter of moments. The only one that survived was Mrs. Spafford. So they took the survivors to Wales, and when she arrived in Wales, she sent a message to her husband, and it just had two words in it, saved alone. So shortly after he would board a ship to join his wife, and as he was on the high seas, his ship came to the place where his daughters were buried at the bottom of the sea. And he sat down and he wrote the words to the song, It is well with my soul. The world would pay millions to have that kind of peace but it is a peace that cannot be bought. It comes by coming to the Prince of Peace and trusting him in everything, with everything. The world's quest can be reduced to peace and security. And if you look at it, whether it's money or fun or whatever it is, it comes down, they want this peace and they want security. And that's what they're striving for. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 says, And what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And in all of their quests, that's what they're seeking. But many people sell their soul for a lot less than gaining the whole world. Judas is one of those. Judas Iscariot, and this passage is about Judas, the demise of Judas. But as we travel through it, you'll see the character of four. You'll see that of Jesus, of Judas, of the priest, and the scripture as you walk through this time in Judas's life and end. So I want to take it verse by verse, just under three main headings. <clears throat> so first there is the plot to kill Jesus. And that's 
in verse 1, the first part. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together. That's the council that would do the work. And the chief priests and the high priests and the elders, you have basically what's going on is the Sanhedrin. But they're the ones making the decisions. But Jesus had already appeared before the court of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, before Annas, who was a former high priest, who still, as we've seen, welded enormous power over everything. They accused him of blasphemy, and yet he did not blaspheme. They were seeking the death penalty. And to seek the death penalty, they wanted him gone. And so to do that, even though they had been having these trials at night, some of it had to be in the daytime so others could see it in order to get that kind of penalty. Also, it had to be the death penalty, something serious, because the Jews, the Sanhedrin, had lost the power over life and death. So they could not pronounce the death penalty. So what they did is made it a, a high crime so that it would be like he was an insurrectionist. But they were wanting to crucify him for blasphemy. Remember, <clears throat> to remind you, when we studied this process of court, when the adjudication was made and you found the person guilty, the court was to wait, which would be this council of priests, for three days. And during that three days, they were to fast and pray, and they were to wait in case someone else heard about the trial and had some more information that might change the verdict. They violated that along with many other rabbinic laws. So they went straight from judging him and seeking the execution. Notice the, the conviction in the last part of verse 1 and verse 2. It was against Jesus to put him to death. That was the goal. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. It was a done deal. They weren't waiting on any other evidence. They made up their mind a long time ago. The whole trial system for them was to find him guilty and then to put him to death under Rome. So again, the chief priest and elders is the Sanhedrin. Pilate here is called the governor. He had been made the uh, procurator or prefect by Caesar Augustus, and I think it was 26 A.D. when that happened. But governor was someone, that's an appropriate name too, and governor was someone that Rome sent to rule over a small area that was somewhat problematic. And they were given the authority of life and death. In other words, if Pilate decided there needed to be the penalty of death, he didn't have to go to Caesar and appeal. He could make that decision his own. So they went to him. Through all of these mistrials and all of the accusations, Jesus remained pure, innocent, and he never wavered. Now notice the plight 
of Judas. And that's in verse 3 through 5. But I want you to see his remorse first. And that is in the first part of verse 3. Then when Jesus, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Judas is the most wicked, vile, evil, nefarious person who has ever lived based on what he did, the heinous, unparalleled evil of betraying Jesus Christ. All the time that he was walking with Christ among these other disciples for three years, when he knew that Jesus wasn't going to be the the conqueror that he wanted, he plotted to kill him. It's a wickedness that's almost incomprehensible, but it really shouldn't be. You know what can happen? Here's a man who was among 12 chosen in the world. There was nobody closer to Jesus than this group of 12. No one. He was one of them. He was close with Jesus, but he was close with the 12 because they didn't know he was a betrayer. I mean, he had the best experience one could have, and so it causes us to question how how could he do that kind of evil? Having been with Jesus, walked with Jesus, blessed by Jesus, with the people, how could that be? And what can creep in is, it can't be. There must be something wrong with Jesus. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but if you've ever had this struggle about how could that possibly be, how could you be in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the apostles all this time, see all the goodness, and turn against him, maybe there's something inadequate. That comes from an unbiblical view of our sinfulness. We can't imagine it. What you should be able to imagine is, I could do the same thing. That's what you should be able to imagine. I have that within me. But what we do is we blame it on something, well, there must have been something that wasn't right. No, it's within all of us. And listen, if we would have been there when they crucified him, and less God's grace upon our life, we would have joined in the rhythmic chant of crucify him, crucify him on that fateful Friday. We look back at the garden, and there are two people, perfect paradise, with God, no sin, and yet they choose to sin. How, how could that be? Because there wasn't even sin in their life. There was a tempter, but they had no sin. They knew everything perfect. That comes from a misunderstanding of libertarian freedom that says, if the option for evil is present, you cannot guarantee a person will not choose that. So in your own home, you, you raise children. You have two or four or five or 25 or whatever. <clears throat> you do everything right. And some go the wrong way. To not think they can do that is to not recognize that when 
God gave us free will, it is a good gift, but it can be used in the wrong way. So think about the millennial reign. Before the millennium, all of the, all the believers will be in heaven with the church or the unbelievers will be killed. The only ones that populate the millennial reign of a thousand years are people who came into the kingdom as believers. So that's all that's there. So Christ is reigning in righteousness. Judgment is done exactly right. Mercy is shown. Everything is the perfect society. And those people who came in have children. And those children, all of their life, are going to witness perfect ruling. There's not going to be anything we have. And yet, when Satan is unleashed a thousand years later, many of them join him to go against Christ. Why is that? Because they chose not to believe in Christ, even though they saw everything. They chose not to believe and when Satan came, he took them, and they desired to go with him. Faith is a choice. So what you're seeing is, in the best environment, a person can choose to do evil in Eden. In the worst environment, remember Jesus said of the tribulation, there's never been a time like it, nor shall there ever be. In the worst environment, some get saved and some don't. Then you're back in the best environment since sin has happened and people do the same thing. So you should always look at this if you want to get to the biblical answer is any of us can do anything. That potential is in us with our sin. He came to a place where he was saddened and regretted when he saw Jesus ridiculed and mocked and came to kind of realize what he had done Guilt, there's a false guilt that we put upon ourselves, and that is, well, if I don't make all A's, I must be a no-good bum. Well, if that's the case, there's a lot of us that are no-good bums. But see, there's no Bible verse that says, if you don't make A's, you're no good. That's a false guilt. True guilt is what the Bible says, and we violate it, which Judas did. So true guilt is to drive us to God in repentance, seeking forgiveness, and today we would say is to drive us to the cross. So what Judas did, he did not get saved. He did not repent. So if you'll notice the word remorse in that verse, it's uh, metalamai. Metalamai in the original. And it means to have remorse or regret. It is not the word for repent. And thus it's not translated repent. The word for repent is metanaeo. So notice the first part of those words, meta is the same but the ending is different. The, the one for remorse is lamai, and the one for repent is naeo. So I'm just trying to make sure you see that 
the word that describes what he did is remorse and regret, but it is not repentance. So he was sorry. He was regret. He regretted. He was troubled over what he had done. He had immeasurable guilt for what he had done. And the passive voice there is um, that the verb is he was seized with this grief. So you know you're going along and you hear bad news, and man, grief it just comes on you. You could have been ha- having the happiest moment, and all of a sudden, and that's the idea. It's passive. It just came on him when the magnitude of what he had done settled in on him. But he had remorse, not regret, or not repentance. Now, I want to take a moment and explain what happens at the second of salvation. And of course, the difference in remorse and regret and sorrow and repentance unto salvation. So I'm giving you this from this, the definitions from the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament based on semantic domains. So it's a very reputable Greek dictionary or lexicon. So listen very carefully because I think we all need to be clear on this. He says... To change, we're talking about what does repentance mean? To change one's way of life. Now listen to this. As a result of a complete change of thought and attitude. Did you get that? The life changes as a result of a change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So you thought one way that it really wasn't sinful or that bad, and then you're brought to a place where you see it is, and it's that change of thought that results in your behavior changing. He goes on, he says, to repent, to change one's way, repentance, So notice that there is the change of the mind and the attitude, and there is a change of behavior. But the change of behavior didn't bring the change in the mind. The change in behavior of the life is a result of true repentance. So if a person repents, it will be evident by the change in his behavior as a result of the change of mind. Not because he's trying to make it or create it, it's just you change your mind and attitude about Christ, about righteousness, your behavior changes. It's a result, it's a consequence. Doesn't mean you get perfect. So remember while we're talking about this, that there is repentance and faith, and I'll probably say this again, So repentance is a turn from something. Faith is toward God. Now we can distinguish between them, but you cannot separate them. We distinguish between them, but we do not separate them. 
They're like the two sides of a coin is the easiest way to remember repentance and faith. So if I were to hand you a quarter and I handed it to you and the heads was up, did you get the tails too? Yeah, it's on the other side. What if the tails? Yes. When you get the coin, you get both sides of the coin. So there's two sides of this process. One of them is repentance, turning from something, and one of them is turning to God in faith. So sometimes we say, you need to repent. Can they repent without faith in God? No. They're two sides of the same coin. What if we say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved? Can they do that without repentance? No. If you believe in Christ unto salvation, you did repent. You changed your mind, which resulted in your behavior changing, see? So keep that in mind. He goes on and he says, though in English a focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin. The emphasis in metanoia and metanoia, those are two forms of the same word for repent. Now listen to this. The emphasis in the original word seems to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should both think and act. And you can find this in, in Jewish understanding as well, and they, they just understand when you repent, it's a change of who you are. You change your mind, but everything changes, so talk about the body, the whole thing changes. So again, though, I want you to see the change of thought and the act are are two parts of repentance, and repentance and faith are two parts of salvation. See? But you can't separate them, you can distinguish. So listen, different verses emphasized, and he goes into more technical stuff, which I'm not going to spend time on, but when you go to different verses, they'll emphasize one aspect, some of them emphasize both aspects of faith and repentance. But if you emphasize one in one verse, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, it doesn't mean you don't repent. It just means it's not necessary to say it every time because they're like this. Luke chapter 3 verse 8, same thing's true in Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist. And he says to the Pharisees who came in repentance, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John's saying if you really repented, then you bring forth fruits that are reflective, you see, of that. You chose to believe, if you truly did, we need to see some change in your life that reflects that. Remember, it's a result of the mind, the attitude. Uh, Hebrews 6.1, and just listen to this. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance, 
from dead works and faith toward God. You see it? Don't let us go back and go back to elementary things of repentance from that life and faith toward God. Let us keep growing. But you see the two components very clearly laid out there where when you look at Luke 3.8 or Matthew 3.8, it's really focusing on behavior. But if the repentance was right, their behavior follows. Remember, it's a result. In Acts 26.20, Paul is preaching, and they're preaching to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Repent, turn from, and then turn to God. Listen to this. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. They should repent, turn from, and they should turn to God in faith, and there should be appropriate change of life reflective of that. So the point of this is, he regretted, but he didn't repent because his life didn't change toward God. And so when you use the word repentance, if you don't have a result of that that's demonstrated in a changed life, you have a Judas turning that did not result in salvation. Notice that he, the repayment of the silver in verse 3, the second part, he says, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. In the first part of verse 5, and he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he departed. He just, out of anger and frustration and despondency and all of that, he just hurled the money back in there with them. No giving it to them or conversation. So he acknowledges his guilt by doing that. But you should also see that Judas, the one closest to the evil, is acknowledging the innocence of Christ. That everything he said, everything he plotted, everything he was going to do, and everything he's done was against an innocent man. He's your greatest witness against what they were charging Christ with. Notice that there was rebellion, not repentance. The last part of verse 5. And he went away and hanged himself. He went away and hanged himself. Did Judas repent? No. No, he didn't. That's not the word that's used. As again, the word doesn't mean that he used was regret, not repentance. Showed repentance. Change of mind that affected his life, but he didn't do that. He was sorry, he was remorseful, like we've been sometimes, like a child can be, an adult can be. They're sorry that they did something, they regret it, they wish they would have made a different decision, but that's not repentance. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll tell you what's going on here. Paul 
because the Corinthians, you know, they messed up quite a bit. So Paul had to come in as the heavy. And he had to get on to them. So he wrote a very strong letter. And when they received it from him, they were hurt. And they were saddened. So even though they had done wrong, Paul loved them. And so they were hurt by his letter. So that leads into the verses I want to read. Look at verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So he did regret it, but now he doesn't, you see. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. That's telling you why he doesn't regret it. He regretted it when he heard they were sorry, he just regretted it. He, he hated hurting them. But then he heard that it had done some good, and so he felt all right. So here's what he, verse 9 and 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Remember, he was sad about that. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. That's what the sorrow of God does. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. It produces salvation. What does ungodly sorrow produce? Death. Jesus called him the devil in John chapter 6, verse 70. If Judas repented, then why did he not come to Jesus' defense? If Judas repented, why did he not ask for forgiveness? And why did he then turn and violate the commandment, thou shalt not murder? He showed no desire to vindicate Christ. There was no change in his life commensurate with biblical repentance and salvation. He gave the money back, and then he went out and hanged himself. That sealed the curse upon him according to Deuteronomy 21:23, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. James chapter 1, verse 15. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. If you ever wanted a succinct example of that, it's this passage with Judas. The sin was he wanted Christ to be what he wanted, bringing the kind of peace and security that he wanted. The sin was that he turned on Christ, and the result of it was a horrible death. There was no defense of Christ, no seeking forgiveness, no change of life towards righteousness about sin. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. 
Matthew is the one in chapter 27, verse 5, tells us that Judas hanged himself. Then this gives you a little bit more information about that hanging. So look in chapter 1 of Acts, and verse 17 says he was counted among us and received his share in ministry. So he was treated just like everybody else by Jesus and others. Verse 18, and now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hekeldama, that is the field of blood. Lust, sin, brings forth death. So, translating the word prenus there, it is translated falling headlong. So that's what you have in English. Meaning that he, he fell prostrate. So, you know, he just, he just fell headlong, no catching himself. That's just drawing a word picture for you. He just fell headlong. Uh, the word uh, that's translated there, fall headlong, can also and sometimes has the idea of swollen, swollen. And so, having fallen, genomai, so having fallen and then swollen, headlong. You put all those together. So I remember working on this many, many years ago when I was in school, actually, and it's just stuck with me, the, the word picture. So you can translate it, having become swollen, he burst open in the middle. So all of his insides came out. So whatever happened, it's, it's portraying a gross death. And hanging is a gross death. I don't know if you know it, but uh, you're pulling my leg. That came from hangings where a child might grab for their father, you know, or something, the leg, or you might grab a child's leg trying to hang on to them, uh, kick the bucket. Remember, they would stand them up on something and then they would kick it and then they go to their death. So phrases like that harken back to hanging, and hanging was a really horrible way to die. And uh, the best thing that could happen to you is the neck broke and it happened like that, but that didn't always happen. So you can translate it, having become swollen, he burst open in the middle. We don't know why he burst open in the middle. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. And, uh, but we know that he did. And so all of his insides splattered out. So one of the ways he could have, it's, it's uh, thought that maybe he hanged himself off of an edge, you know, like, like he hanged himself here. He, he was here and he put the rope around. He kind of jumped out and hung himself. And then when the rope broke after he's dead, he fell on the rocks. And, and that may very well be. We just don't know. And, and again, what I'm telling you, I don't know for fact because it just doesn't tell us. 
but it does bring an image to me of death. Because when you die, I mean, when, when someone dies with us, we generally view them uh, days or weeks later uh, after the mortician has performed the artistic skills of his profession. And I'm thankful for that. But it does make death not quite look like death really is. And so when you die, basically it's about three days, rigor mortis is doing its work and then it's done. That's why Jesus came to Lazarus on the fourth day. There was a belief among the Jews that the soul hovered around for three days, but that correlates to the time of rigor mortis. And uh, so on the fourth day, they knew you were dead. But when you die, and there may be conditions this doesn't happen, but in some conditions, uh, your body will swell uh, remarkably. And so it, I don't know how long he was hanging there, but he could have hung there long enough for rigor mortis to do its work and swell and the rope break or something and him fall and gush out. But any way you look at it, we don't know all the facts. We just know that it was a very, very graphically horrible death. And it, he didn't, God didn't allow death to have any beauty to it when it is a sinner dying like this. Verse 25, it says he, to go to his own place. That doesn't sound like heaven. It's to go to his own place and meaning a place he belonged. The idea is he went to the place that he chose. And that is a gory death that didn't relieve his sadness. Which when you hang yourself, you're thinking, I just need to die to get over all of this. It just crystallizes it. And it becomes a million times worse. Death and suicide do not relieve guilt. They intensify it. And the longevity of it is eternal. He's in hell and tormenting beyond anything that we can describe. And Jesus gave us the best images, word pictures, for trying to grasp how horrid it is. And yet, we have to take those and contemplate them to even to begin to get to how horrible it really is. Sin promises joy and it delivers sadness. It promises freedom. It delivers bondage. It promises prosperity. Delivers poverty. It promises power. Delivers impotence. It promises life. Brings death. It promises peace and brings pain. Psychological, physical, spiritual, everything. All kinds of pain at once. Satan deceives you. He doesn't want you to come to God. He doesn't want people to come to God for the true peace through repentance and faith. So he rebelled, but he did not repent. Notice the pretense. Rather than uh, or the pretense of the priest in verse 6 through 8. The first thing, notice that they talk about the, the, the price of blood. This is the uh, self 
they, they self-incriminate incriminate themselves. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. It's the price of blood, or, or we would might call it blood money. So they admitted that it was blood money. And they wouldn't allow it back into the temple treasury because it was contaminated. But they incriminated themselves because they're the ones that gave the money to take the deed. So it was self-incrimination. By their saying, we can't take it back in, it's defiled, it's blood money. And yet they're the ones that gave it. Judas was cruel and ungodly and satanic for what he did, but he did have remorse. These are unremorseful. They are callous. They have no guilt, no sorrow, nothing. All they're concerned about is the outward propriety of how things look. That's all they're concerned about. Legal propriety. Well, wait a minute. We need to do this because the law says this. Uh, this says this. We need to do this. And do... That's all they're concerned about. On with the show. I mean, it's just the epitome of hypocrisy where somebody's very concerned about these things and they're living in sin. You know, I've seen in Baptist churches sometimes in business meetings, there are people who, if you violate Robert's rules of order, they're ready to tear the house down. And they may be stealing something or living in adultery or, or drinking or, I mean, they can be doing all kinds of things. And I've seen that. But they're very persnickety over Robert's rules of orders, but not God's word. They soothe their own conscience. Look at verse 7 and 8. And they conferred together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. So the money was ritually impure. They couldn't hang on to it. They couldn't put it back in the treasure. So they bought a potter's field. And a potter's field was where potters would dig up the clay that they made things from. So it's quite possible that this one was no longer used. And so they bought it very cheaply. The word strangers there was a, sometimes used as a euphemism for Gentiles whom they loathed. So I know what we'll do. We'll buy this old empty potter's field and we'll designate it for Gentiles to be buried. The New American Commentary says, it was unclean money that bought an unclean place for unclean people. And the potter's field, if you'll notice, it's mentioned like it was a common place, you know, like we might say uh, Oklahoma City. It, it just seems like it was a well-known place to everybody. But again, it was a testimony to Christ's innocence by what they did and by what Judas did. So Judas sinned and committed suicide. He did not repent, but when he came and he realized the evil he had done, he poured it out to these priests, and verse 4 says, they looked at him and they said, see to that yourself. 
no compassion. And that's what Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the others for in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, is they lay burdens on others that no man can keep, and they have no compassion. Well, notice the prophecy that's fulfilled, and that's verse 9 and 10. First, verse 9, the price to be paid. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. So the price to be paid. Now, it appears like this refers back to Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6 through 9, where Jeremiah buys a field, but the money that's paid is not the same as here. And then you can also uh, write down and read through Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1 through 13. Some of the components that are found here are found there in Jeremiah. So he refers to Jeremiah. But the 30 shekels was actually prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 11, verse 12 through 13. So you see when you read it, it says Jeremiah... But that specific thing that's quoted there was from Zechariah. So how do you explain that? Well, here's two possible things, and I think they're both very good because we know both of them went on. <clears throat> One of them is, uh, John MacArthur mentions this, that, of course, we know that the Jews divided the Old Testament into the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jeremiah's first in the prophets, so they would have mentioned him even though they're talking about one of the others. And if you can imagine you're unrolling a scroll and you're going through it and now you've come to the prophets and you see the first one, and so sometimes they would put all that under one name. The other answer for it, and I think that one that MacArthur mentions is good, Uh, The other one is the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And they say Jeremiah was referred to because of the two prophets he was the most significant. Now, if you'll notice in this, he also came before. But he's the most significant, so you would list, you might say, instead of saying everyone involved, you would say the most significant. So... The price is in Zechariah, as I said, but in Jeremiah 19, you find the blood of innocence in verse 4. In verse 1 and 11, you find the potter. In verse 6, you find the valley of slaughter, which speaks to the uh, brutality of it all. And then verse 11, there was a burial, gra- burial ground. So it's, it's viewed as a literary convention where maybe in one quote, you're going to mention three prophets, but instead of saying all of them, you just say the first one. And they would have known what you were referring to. We see this like in Mark chapter 1 verse 2. You can look at this later where he synthesizes uh, a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, but he only mentions Isaiah but it's a synthesizing of what these two prophets said. 
The only thing I can give you uh, of our day, and there, there are probably better things, but I do know from quoting a lot of uh, people that when sometimes there's three or four people that collaborated on this work and you quote them, maybe in the, in the source, in the footnote or the bibliography, you have it laid out exactly, but in the text you'll say, Jones said, see, and you give the footnote, but you don't list all of them. And so uh, Richard Delgado and uh, Gene Stefanczyk, they both wrote these things, but I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but you just don't see Stefanczyk alone, but you will see sometimes Delgado because he's mentioned first, see? So it's that same time, same kind of convention, particularly if you're familiar with the works. Again, formally we don't do that, but they did it by convention and it's very understandable. Then look at verse 10, the purchase to be made. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Just what God said. So here are these priests, and we've seen this through the whole thing. They're in charge. They have all kinds of power. And yet they're really not in charge. Because exactly what God told through the prophets, their decisions brought to pass. God is in charge. So the plot to kill Jesus, his character, he was pure and trustworthy. The plight of Judas, he was corrupt and condemned. And the same end befalls all who try to deal with their sin by themselves. The pretense of the priests, they were callous and unyielding. And the prophecy of God was fulfilled just like he predicted it. And so everything that God said has come to pass with minute detail or shall. And so when he tells us there's one way to heaven and that's by trusting Christ, believing the revelation about Christ, that's what that really means. He has been revealed to us and believing that revelation is required for salvation. And to choose to believe it is to change from what we previously thought that it wasn't right, regardless of our age. We have a change of mind, and that will be evident to others, not in our perfection, but in a life that evidences that our change in belief has happened. Will you bow your head? And have you ever believed in Christ so that when you look at your life as a result of that belief there's repentance and that repentance results that your life changed I mean you don't really understand it all but you know one thing when you repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ your life was not the same your thought and attitude about righteousness and sin was not the same that's what we call salvation. But it includes both repentance and faith. 
It doesn't matter if the person said you have to believe and repent or to repent or to believe. When you did, if you did unto salvation, you did believe and you repented and there's a change in your life. That's what salvation is. You can look at your own life and say, I don't see repentance in my life. My life's just like it was. My priorities are the same. My time expenditures, everything's the same. I view sin and righteousness basically the same. That's not salvation. But you can have it by one thing, believing in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, your attitude changes about him. There will be a repentance that brings about a change in your behavior. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the clarity of it. And Lord, we, we look at Judas and how he died. And, but more horrid than that, is how he exists this very moment. And you've drawn a graphic picture of the horror of death. And yet, it is eclipsed by the horror of separation from you for eternity. May we look to you in faith, God, and trust Christ. And may no one leave here today that doesn't know 100% they have trusted you and their life gives evidence of that. We love you. We ask it in Christ.